Welcome to this special Innovation Forum podcast. I'm Ian Welsh. We are publishing some of the highlights from our spring event series. Coming up now is the opening session from the recent Sustainable Apparel and Textiles Conference, where Innovation Forum's Toby Webb was joined by Larry Pepper from Textile Exchange, Jose Arguidas from River Island, Lucita Jasmine from April, and Liz Hirschfield from J. Crew Group. They debated if fast fashion has 10 years left, what's next? We join the session as Toby is introducing the topic and about to hand over to the panel for some introduction. Our first session, um, a brilliant title I thought that Hannah wrote, Fast Fashion Has 10 Years Left, So What's Next? And I don't think that means what's next after the 10 years. I think we can take that to read what, what's next now. What are we going to do about this? Um, and I'm going to ask our panel to introduce themselves very briefly around the room and then I'll ask uh, Larray to, to kick us off with some opening comments. So, um, Larray, let's get the 10 seconds on you, then then uh, around the room, and then we'll come back to you. So, welcome, and Larray, over to you for intros. Good morning and afternoon. I'm Larray Pepper, the CEO and co-founder of Textile Exchange. Thank you. Jose. Hi, I'm Jose Arguedas. I'm the head of corporate responsibility and sustainability at River Island. Thank you. Liz. Hi, I'm Liz Hirschfield. I oversee sustainability for J. Crew Group, which includes J. Crew Brand, Madewell, and J. Crew Factory, as well as production for Madewell. Thank you. Lucy. Hi, uh, thanks, Toby. Good evening, everyone. I'm Lucy Jasmine, and the Director of Sustainability and External Affairs at the April Group. We have our headquarters in Singapore, but we have our forestry and fiber manufacturing operations in Indonesia. Thanks very much, everyone. Right, well, my job is really fairly easy here. The speakers have to set the world to rights in the next 15 to 20 minutes or so um, uh, and offer some, some thoughts on where we go next. The idea of the sort of fast fashion has 10 years left, I think, came from a statement made by a fashion CEO. It may have been the Zalando boss, I think, at some point. And I, I think that really has provoked a debate, which has been long in the coming, but we're really seeing the pace of change uh, accelerate at the moment, at least in terms, as I said earlier, of ambition, strategies, incentives, and drivers. So, Larray, um, maybe it isn't 10 years left. Uh, according to uh, the work you've been doing on looking at climate change, it could be as little as eight. Uh, in any case, we've got to get on with it, haven't we? So, um, looking forward to some opening comments from you, Larray. Yeah, so interesting. Yes, when you think about the countdowns and the goals of 2030 and 2040, 2050, we've got to hit certain targets in order to be there. The debate over fast fashion is heated in that there's so many things associated with unsustainable goods, non-renewable resources, poor labor, poor quality. You know, all the bad things about fashion seem to be lumped into this term fast fashion. So I think one of the first things we've got to do is determine what that means and then take action because there is, you know, it's that type of fashion that is you know, moving from the initial goal of maybe creating affordable fashion has actually become disposable fashion. And, uh, you know, when, when you are using, you know, oversupplying different things with unsustainable goods, non-renewable resources, um, this is where all the stories are coming from many times of, of poor labor conditions, when you're going for the cheapest price as possible, when it's it, it's it's all the things that are are there. So it's like, how do you take that, you know, that the business models and say, okay, we've got to regroup 
There's a number of those brands that have been typically fast fashion that are actually taking some steps. So there are proven solutions, Toby. There are some great things to do, not only at the factory level with, you know, using renewable resources, but certainly when it comes to choices on fibers and materials, certification, you know, better labor practices, durability of goods, quality of goods. There are a number of actions that can be taken. So the challenge is actually going to be in the business models, the price paradigm that we've talked about so many times of leaving, um, you know, price only to get into to, to the value. Just like you said, it's more than carbon. It's about people's lives. It's about quality of life. It's about biodiversity. So we don't want to have a carbon Carbon, you know, instead of court, uh, you know, a tunnel vision, it's a carbon tunnel vision that, yes, that is imperative, but we have to do it in balance with other things that matter. So I think fast fashion is like you say, there's not a future in the current model, but what do we do um, to encourage those brands and retailers to look at the influence and opportunities they have to, to take more responsible and go into responsible fashion? Thank you, Lorraine. Henry Ford famously said that if he'd listened to his customers, he would have made a faster horse. <laughs> True. Now, when we're thinking about fast fashion, is that something customers really demanded? Or is it something that the industry created and then put upon them, and now we're trying to back away from it? Does that change how we should tackle it now? Because you know, it, it isn't, I mean, what are your views on this? Was it consumer demand that created this, or was it packaged and sold? And, and I guess, does that make it easier to perhaps to, to rewind some of these practices? I think it is very interesting. It's probably a little of both in that um, when you think, you know, you rewind the clock, it was availability of product and style. Um, but it's, it's like the pendulum has it swung to this point of when you can go in and buy, buy two, get one free or, or buy one and get two free and the overproduction, it, it is, you know, I think it is time to take a hard, you know, to do that hard stop as, as a business and say, these kinds of practices must be stopped. Again, it's crossed the line into going into the disposable fashion. When you can't wash something once or twice and it's falling apart, poor construction, poor fiber quality, poor, you know, we've just, that part has got to stop and, and create more durable goods, more responsible goods. So I think it's time for that introspection. And, and if you're not there yet, then it's time to be there. There are proven solutions. Quick question before I ask uh, Jose for his comments. Do you get pushback from fast fashion brands? Do, do people send you angry emails saying you're all a bit Marxist, you know, trying to trying to control everything and shut down capitalism? How dare you? Yeah. How do you position textile exchange to be supportive of the change without alienating, you know, large portions of the sector who, who frankly are quite unsustainable? Well, you know me, Toby, I tend to get preachy every once in a while. So I would say in years past, we we got kind of shunned a little bit. But right now, those fast fashion brands are knocking on the door and saying, help us, we've got to have a strategy. So I think the wake up call has been well established. I think the challenge is um, making sure the ramp, you know, the, the on ramp. And I think Jose and Liz can talk about that. The on ramp is there. They have to make investments. They have to change their business models. These are not that, you know, while there are proven solutions, they're not easy to implement all the time. It's going to take a choice. And like you say, the consumers, that where's that balance? Now the consumers are used to, I can have anything and everything and, and have one shirt in five different colors and only wear them once. I think there's a re-education that has to go with consumers. And I think brands are going to pay 
a really important role in consumer education and changing of values that we're leaving the price paradigm to a value paradigm. So I think there's going to be real opportunities for these brands, all of them across the board to change their practices and then communicate with the consumer as to how they're delivering value. Thank you, Lorraine. Well, there's some great questions coming in already on the chat. You've actually listened to me uh, and put the great ones in early. Thank you so much. Ling Zhu, what a great question that is. Claire Cunningham, thanks for yours and Francisco as well. Um, uh, so we'll come to those in a minute, but let me let me turn to Jose first. So Jose, are you fast fashion? Uh, and if so, what are you going to do about it? <laughs> and secondly, if you're not, how are things going to change? Yeah, so that's a good question. I think going to Larry's point around what is fast fashion, I think that's a question that we need to uh, pose ourselves and, and how we define it in, in terms of this conversation. And I think that when you look at um, fast fashion from a model of high volumes, low price, speed to market, um, you know, that that's revolutionized our industry in the last 10 years or 15 years. Um, I think that there's definitely um, several flaws in the model and those need to be addressed, like Larry say, in terms of looking at um, how do we engage in a conversation with customers that transforms what we currently uh, see in the market, which is that uh, value volume kind of proposition into a more of an experience-based proposition, which is how do I um, able to enable you to make better choices, better, better decisions? And this goes into using of better technology to address overstocking, for example, um, and, and, and being able to plan um, accordingly. Um, you know, I think that one of the reasons why uh, Robert Gens, um, Salando's CEO, made a comment on, you know, fast fashion has 10 years left, it's, it's because of that um, increased volume of production. So I think that when you look at 40% of that stock never being worn, and most, most of that ending in the landfill, it's just, I'm sorry, it's bonkers. It's just it's crazy that, that you're, you're, you're not finding a solution for that. So I think that that's one of the first things that we need to address and how do we become more efficient and bring to market what it's needed. And I think that, uh, again, it's, it's, a, it's a combination of things in terms of um, having that engagement with the customers, listening to what customers are demanding, which that's been uh, on its own journey as well as new customers coming to market with different expectations, in different uh, demands of companies to be more sustainable, be more responsible, um, to uh, also the market itself. And how do we look at our own ability to, to be able to um, you know, survive in the next 15, 20 years and, 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 and remain relevant and, and remain um, active participants of, of, of the, this you know, change that, that we need to see in the industry. So things like technology, offering better services, uh, more complete uh, products, things like, uh, for example, e-commerce and repair. We're looking at all these new avenues uh, in the fashion world that are providing those 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 solutions to customers. You know, e-commerce itself is just uh, something that has grown in the last couple of years, um, you know, tenfold. And we see the expectation for that market to grow 11 times faster by 2025, then the traditional high street will, will, will grow in that same period of time. So, you know, it is, uh, again, how we engage in those new conversations with customers, offering new solutions, 
and new experiences. Uh, look at what's happening in the digital world. You know, we, we see the metaverse and we see, you know, NFTs and people engaging in fashion through the virtual world and, and, and you know, purchasing items, high value items, by the way, uh, for, 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 that, for that space, because also the way that we interact as society and, and as people has changed. So there's definitely not one solution. I think that we need to look at this problem uh, or, or, or the situation from many different um, lenses and at the same time, uh, you know, react in a way that we're becoming more efficient, we're using better materials, we, we're becoming more um, of, of, you know, of participants of that solution to create, to, you know, to, 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 you know, basically bring fast fashion to, to, to a kind of thing of the past. <laughs> Yeah, I like the idea of moving fast fashion to the metaverse, because presumably you can turn over your outfits every day there, and that just uh, that's okay. But, but but if you see, for example, in, in twenty twenty, I think it was the first um, uh, metaverse uh, fashion week. Uh, you know, so in this year, uh, it's, it's just happening March this year. Uh, Forever twenty one, which is a high street brand, um, presented a whole collection. In, in 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 the you know metaverse uh, fashion week so it is the direction many companies are starting to go and i think it like i said like i said it's, it's also understanding how do we engage with customers in this new world where the way that we engage has changed the way that we want to express ourselves has changed um but also in a way that you know we're conscious that we need to take action on serious things you know in the environment and climate change or those are serious questions that we as businesses and as members of society, we also want to see the world improve. And we want to, you know, I'm a part of fast, not fast fashion, but I would say a part of fashion. And and I, I do want to leave a world to my children that it's, you know, better than what I found. So it is, it is uh, us as members of that community trying to uh, provide solutions uh, to the problems as well. Sure. Thank you. I'll move on to Liz. Um, so, Liz, uh, what, what are your views on all this? I mean, I guess Patagonia has already got the sort of slow fashion uh, thing going <laughs> up, haven't they? So, where does this leave J. Crew in the coming years, and what are your reflections more generally? Yeah, you know, I think um, you know, there's so many ways to approach it, and I think as Jose and Lorea talked to touch on so many different aspects of kind of moving away from the idea of disposable product, buying and discarding, going into a world where we're purchasing, we're wearing, we're recycling, we're reusing, like that's where we need to be. And so, you know, I think as we think about Madewell and J. Crew, you know, from a brand perspective, we're really focused on quality. Right. So how do we how do we offer really intentional, high quality product to our customers um, that'll last and that actually can have like second, third and fourth lives? Because I think that's the most important thing. Right. You want your product to last. And then, when you know, it's it's not a bad thing as a consumer to get tired of something and want something new. So what do you do with that product? And I think, you know, on the Madewell side, um, last year we launched Madewell Forever, which is our resale platform. We launched with denim where you can you know come in and trade in. Um, 
old je- old jeans from any brand. Um, the ones that aren't wearable anymore get recycled, and the ones that are wearable but wearable get posted for resale. Um, and we just launched on Earth Day. We're actually broadening um, to multiple product categories, from bags to um, dresses and outerwear. So I think that that's really the key here: is how do we extend the life of the product that we're purchasing, and how do we keep it in cycle until it's no longer wearable, and then how do you recycle it? Um, because that's really what we need to be doing. And I do think that there is a shift going on from a consumer perspective. We are seeing more interest in re-commerce resale. It is a very, very fast growing sector of the industry. Um, and I do think that that's going to be really critical in us kind of eradicating this kind of mentality of fast fashion. Do you think, uh, Liz, that the those in the industry who perhaps need to change the most grasp the changes that are required to business model innovation, because we, we, we've got to be honest here, right? Not everybody innovates themselves out of trouble, but I guess that's okay. I mean, it's okay under a capitalist system. So under a more resource constrained system, that's okay too, right? Yeah. You know, I think as we think about brands, you know, at, at J Crew and Madewell, we're really focused on collaboration and the collective because we, we don't want to, you know, hold things tight as a competitive advantage when we're thinking about circularity and sustainability because it actually will only make an impact as a collective. Um, and so I think that the, the industry has really embraced that. So we're also hoping by taking the charge, taking the lead in the industry, we're, at, we're inspiring others to take part as well. And we're open. You know, we love to share information. We want to brainstorm. We want to partner with other brands because that's the only way we make an impact. So I do think there's a shift happening. It's slow, but I, you know, it's also, it is hard to make that shift and you have to you know, really be thoughtful and intentional about it. And so if you have other partners in the industry that can help you educate and help partner, I think that makes it easier. And I think that's one of the biggest things that we're excited about is just the collaborative piece of all of this. Thank you. Well, we've got lots of great questions. So let me move on to Lucy. Those of you who don't know about um, April and Asia Pacific Rail, they really are sort of pioneering um, in many ways circular economy approaches to, to viscose production, particularly in, in Indonesia. But I'll let the expert tell you about it. Lucy, um, what do you think about all of this from your position on the on the supply side? Um, thanks, Toby. So yes, where do we come in in this conversation, right? I mean, we're coming from the upstream of the value chain. We're a producer of bio-based products such as fiber, pulp, paper for packaging and textile. And we're part of the RGE group, which is the biggest supplier of viscose in the world through sister companies, Satri and Asia Pacific Rail. So, so how do we become part of this whole transition from fast to perhaps not so much as slow fashion, but really about the broader agenda of sustainable fashion? Right? So from our perspective, we see it being driven by four, um, four uh, I guess, four factors. First is there's got to be a shift from fossil fuel-based uh, materials to renewable and more responsible fibers. It's got to start from the transition has got to start in, with the with the with the right material choice to begin with, right? The the second point for us is of course about innovation and scaling up of new solutions, whether this is on recycling and the use of alternative materials, which we are driving in our production process. There is also, of course, the third part of the whole circularity aspect of it. And then finally, of course, recognizing that there, all of this needs to be connected to the broader impact in terms of global climate and nature protection goals. So I think it's all about really redefining the whole paradigm from just looking at volume, 
you know, like buying less and less frequently and, and affordability, but really trying to see the whole value proposition in terms of what sustainable fashion is really all about. So it goes back really to your first question about defining what's next, right? So, and, and for us really, this is what we call sustainable or responsible fashion. I mentioned earlier that the first factor is about, the, for the transition is really about starting with the right material choice. You know, we believe viscose of course is renewable, it's biodegradable, it's resource efficient, particularly in terms of water and land use. And it does offer a sustainable alternative to fossil fuel based materials like polyester, for example. Now, the other thing of course is that viscose can be responsibly produced, especially if it enables large scale conservation and restoration as we do in Indonesia, for example. Our company is responsible for about 380,000 hectares of conservation and restoration forests. And this is enabled by the whole production process that provides resources for uh, the operational, the technical, and of course, the whole financial requirements of running a conservation program, for example. Um, I mentioned the second factor of innovation. We are into recycling. We have a commitment to source 20% of our materials for viscose production from recycled textiles. We're looking to establish the whole infrastructure of sorting and collecting uh, pre-consumer recycled uh, materials or textile here in Indonesia, which is quite a significant initiative that we're really um, working with, uh, with partners to, to be able to establish here in Indonesia or to mainstream here in Indonesia and also potentially in China, so our sister company. And then at the same time, of course, we're also looking at alternative materials apart from just recycled textiles. We are into uh, agricultural waste as well and investing a lot in R&D and partnerships on how to make this happen. We are the biggest viscose producer, as I mentioned, and therefore we have the capability to scale this up. But of course, we're looking to the brands to give us this, this, this signal of a significant market uptake. You know, if there is no market incentive, then how are we going to scale up solutions that can help really the transition to sustainable fashion uh, possible? And uh, I mentioned also earlier about circularity, which Lorea, um, I, I guess, noted in her opening remarks as well. We do need to be much more resource efficient in the way we produce our textile and our, and, and our apparel, and whether this includes chemical recovery and less water use, and of course, the, the use of more renewable energy in our production. So there's a whole aspect of this that needs to go into the re-education of, uh, of our consumers. Uh, and yes, it is about giving them a whole new experience, but at the same time, it's also making them understand really the broader implications of their choices right now. And the consumers are showing a lot more or signaling a lot more openness to understanding this and sharing the whole responsibility of this transition, right? So I think it needs to start with really uh, identifying or defining what, the what is the shift that you want in terms of what this paradigm is all about and then bringing the whole value chain into it, which includes, of course, upstream producers like ourselves, and we're, we're part of that, and then connecting this to the broader implications of impact that has to do with climate, nature protection, well-being, and then re-educating everyone in relation to this. So, um, and that includes, of course, the brands, upstream producers like us, and the consumers as well. Thank you. Now, um, moving demand for sustainable viscose upwards, is 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 happening it's taking time as well so what are some of the key barriers that you come across 
Lucy, from, from brands in sourcing more sustainable viscose, which after all has a, a good circular story on it that a lot of other materials don't. How are you seeing demand change and how are you seeing those kind of overcoming those barriers evolving in terms of growing the market? Sure. Well, we need to have a lot more engagement with the brands so that they're able to understand exactly how to assess and be more inclusive in terms of their choices of what sustainable viscose could look like, right? There are frameworks that are available out there, but we need to also be able to evaluate this framework so that they become much more um, science-based. Uh, they are aligned to industry standards that apply to sustainable forestry, and there are such that are available in the industry. And um, at the same time, of course, it needs to be much more multi-stakeholder oriented so that there's inclusive perspective into what goes into these frameworks for assessing what sustainable viscose is all about. Currently, it's still rather um, too hardline, and I guess in our view, needs to be much more inclusive, particularly from producers that are coming from our part of the world here in Indonesia. Thank you. Well, progress made, much more to do. Let's go to questions from the chat. We've got lots of great ones in here. Um, starting at the top here, um, we've had some really interesting conversations. Um, uh, we've had some comments about incentives, which I think we've started talking about. The consumer mindset to fast fashion, which I think you've all made comments about. Uh, I like this question by Ling Zhu. Thank you, Ling. Uh, what are the growth opportunities if the se sector shifts away from existing fast fashion business models, how does the sector leverage the new growth opportunities? Now, Larray, that must be a question that comes up quite a lot for you. What do you say when it does? Well, it's so interesting because as you're redefining value, when you think about, um, it's not necessarily the number of genes that you sell, but the quality of the genes, and it may be, you know, there's going to be costs associated with greater durability. If you're going back to ring spun yarns to, you know, to help all of that. So it's interesting to think about in that business model, are you, you know, creating value solutions? And so it's about redefining value. It's not number, maybe the number of units you sell, but actually the service and the product and the quality that you're delivering to the consumers. So I think it is a mindset shift that happens there about really servicing consumers and doing, you know, providing needs, you know, which clothing is one of the basic needs of humankind, but it is also doing it in a way that is honoring the planet and the people as we do that. So it is that mindset for, for the company to say, we're going to provide good, good product that's going to last long. I know I've got a little pair of overalls that my grandson's wearing that his father wore. And so, you, you know, those durable goods, like the circular systems, circularity and the systems and the economic systems that go along with that, pulling in waste product, avoiding the landfill. There's so many different things that can be done to redefine value and, and bring, bring a different solution to mind. And the consumer education piece is, is huge for that, right? Even in the, the prep call for this conversation today, I had Liz and Larry giving me uh, clothing care tips so I don't ruin all my jeans. And I think uh, Liz told me I should never put my jeans in the washing machine. I did a little straw poll of everyone I know. Nobody knew that. 
and those people work in sustainability like I'm supposed to do. So there's an enormous knowledge gap about what we actually do here as consumers because the impacts could be hugely reduced. So, I mean, Liz, what do you see as the, the opportunity for a brand like J. Crew? You know, you've just been through a restructuring. Yeah. Uh, there's nothing like a sort of cathartic road to Damascus moment coming out of that to redefine things. Do you see a great opportunity there to help leverage those sorts of conversations to consumers to create loyalty and, and new models? A hundred percent. I think it is up to us as brands to educate the consumers, right? And, you know, there's a certain subset of the consumer that is educated and really passionate, but on a broader sense, I do think that how do you care for your clothes? Like everything doesn't need to be washed every time. You don't have to put it in the dryer. It uses a ton of energy. It also makes your clothes last longer because you are breaking down the quality every time you wash it. And when we talk about denim, denim was created to last the test of time. And, you know, it's a beautiful novel fabric and it's supposed to kind of be worn and, you know, every day getting all of that, like great, like wear and tear in it, you know, the spots and the things that we try to do to make something look old or can actually be, attained by just wearing it, not washing it. I mean, obviously people like to wash things. So like maybe not washing it as regularly, but I do think there's a consumer education piece of it for sure. And, you know, we are on that journey as well, particularly, you know, for J. Crew. And the thing that, you know, we really do when we were really thoughtful and, and kind of authentic about the sustainable products that we launch, but we also have an education piece. Like we do have moments where we talk about how do you care for your clothes? We have um, our first ESG report for J. Crew coming out this summer. Um, and we will have a Madewell report as well, which um, for Madewell, that's the Do Well report. And for J. Crew, it's called Reimagined. And that's a place where consumers can go to really educate and see all of the work that we're doing, understand like the impact that's having, because it also has real data there. It says like, you know, we're doing these things, but here's what the positive impact is. So um, I do, you know, it, it is up to us to get the consumer engaged and excited about it. Um, and so we're just continuing to, to, to present that type of information to our consumer base. And I think we will see traction um, for sure. Thanks. Jose, you've, you've been around in the industry for a long time. You work for a number of companies. What, what are the triggers for getting you know, senior management, those who are responsible to shareholders, investors, to, to, to get this? Is the consumer angle the way in? Is it, is it more about product and service? I guess it's all of the above. But I just wonder if there's any particular tips you can offer listeners as to getting senior management excited about embracing this change rather than being scared of it, because it is quite scary for many of them. Yeah, that's true. And I think there's definitely an opportunity to engage senior management at this time that we didn't have a few years ago. I think that uh, for many of us who have been in the industry for, or this, you know, sustainability for long, it's always been uh, a, a mission to convince and to make the case for sustainability. But I, but I think we've now, you know, taken the turn a little bit more into uh, where sustainability has made itself its own business case for for businesses, and I think we're seeing in the boardrooms and, and in, at, at executive leadership uh, that sustainability is being more embraced now. And and I think that the pandemic and, and all the lockdowns and all the situation that we've gone through, I think it's it's, it's highlighted and heightened a bit more the need for businesses to be more sustainable and to offer a, a different type of product to customers and. Um, you know, uh, when we look at uh, the different analysis that we have for customers and how they're changing their, their, their buying behaviors, you look at millennials, you look at gen setters, and the number of customers reporting that they're actually 
considering sustainability as one of the key elements for, for buying products, you know, that in itself is just enough business case for, for businesses to look at. Yes, that is, is something that I need to, to, to take serious. Number one. Number two is also, uh, if you want to look at long-term plan in, in, in your, your own, you know, survival of your business and remaining relevant in, in, in this space, you need to incorporate elements of sustainability. You need to think about efficiencies. You need to think about how do you expand on your offering and, and services that you're giving your customers? Because this is what customers are expecting now. You know, we, we used to say, uh, you know, when we were reporting in the past about transparency and disclosure, it was a real battle for companies to really open up and, and be willing to share information about what they were doing. But now it's, it, it, it's almost become an expectation of customers that you are transparent, that you disclose information on, on things that you're doing, because otherwise they will go to different choices that actually offer that transparency in that, in that, in that uh, you know, that, that, that level of, of information. And it's, it's become a hygiene factor for you to be able to have all these things in place if you want to become and remain relevant to your customers. Um, and I think also that the other thing that has changed is that uh, we're starting to see that uh, sustainability, it is uh, a way for um, driving innovation into the business, uh, creating new channels for, for businesses to become better, recruit better talent. Also, you know, uh, the, the, the number two question on all the people that we're recruiting at the moment is what are you doing on sustainability? Number one question is about flexible working. Number two is sustainability. So it is becoming more and more an element, even for you, if you want to get the best talent in your company, that you do something, you have a strategy in place, and you're engaging that conversation also with your own employees. I imagine, Lucy, you were nodding there that you would find the experience the same in Indonesia as it would be in, in London with regard to that comment on what, what talent wants from your business now. Yes, that's true, actually. It is, uh, we've done a survey a few years ago in China, Indonesia, Singapore, where we would normally recruit, and I guess also in Brazil. And sustainability as an employee value proposition actually came as a, either a number one or a number two consideration. You know, So that is really a major driver, not just in terms of being able to secure financing, because as you know, we do get into sustainability-linked loans as well where our performance against specific KPIs that are agreed with the banks are, are, well, are able to determine what sort of interest rates are going to be applied to us over a particular period. So there's financing, there's recruitment, there's of course market access, which is uh, also a, a prim primary consideration. So yes, there is, um, there, it's an opportunity as well that we use as sustainability professionals to drive the agenda, to drive the integration of sustainability much more close close to the business, I guess, to the core of the business, to the strategy of the business. And that is really what is happening. Um, we were just listening to a whole town hall of presentations across the whole RGE group of the, the plans for 2022. And decarbonization is just a common term across. And that is not something that you would imagine a year or two ago, but now everybody's talking about it as if it's really part of the whole operational plan immediately and over the midterm. So there's a shift that's happening. I guess the challenge really is about being able to capture this in, in, in the whole narrative of what sustainable fashion is all about and making and getting this, connecting this with the, with the consumer choices, right? So that they get the appreciation of the whole impact of their consumer choices 
from the production all the way to the actual product that they get when, when they make the purchase, you know, at the point of purchase. So uh, it's, it's really about educating responsible consumption while at the same time, of course, working hard to drive responsible production at the same time. Thank you. Um, I'm going to finish off this conversation by asking about rental business models. Are they overhyped? Because everyone keeps talking about them, but, you know, some people are suggesting they're a bit overhyped. But before we do that, we have to talk about regulation. Uh, Bruno's uh, comment in the in the chat is a good one. We should invite some members of the EU Commission. Oh, we do, Bruno. Uh, and we have had them on here. I think last year we did and the year before. It's quite difficult to know who to ask because, you know, DG Environment and DG Grow um, don't always agree, <laughs> as far as I can tell. And it's not even clear which what who's in charge sometimes. But that's the nature of politics. It can be that way in companies as well. So we have had a number of comments uh, around um, whether it's due diligence, whether it's uh, the, the new, new European textile strategy, uh, or as Adrian Greek references, the other overlapping regulations uh, around um, deforestation, social accountability and sustainable products, we can see regulatory pressures arriving from many directions. Now, that may help level the playing field, uh, but at some point, uh, we have to decide, I suppose, whether or not as a company you're taking the hit or you're going to try and pass it on to consumers and at, at which time do you do that. So to Adrian's point, uh, Lorraine, let me come back to you. you know, is the conversation to the customer or as a customer and taking a hit on profit? Um, I know it's, this is a kind of a big picture session, but interested to see what sort of mix of strategies you're seeing in the membership on this. That is quite interesting, and we are definitely more involved in policy and advocacy than we've ever been as far as um, educating, briefing documents, here's options. When do, you know, we, we offer voluntary standards to the industry, and how did that fit into helping those brands meet those requirements? So it, if it is an investment all the way across the board, whether it's more the production of more responsible fibers, so it does fall into the business model. I, I think that there's, you know, no way, quite frankly, and we're finally getting that in conversations with a few CFOs as we're working on business models, is that there is going to be a consumer cost associated with this, that there are ways that the, the, the business model of the brand can, can make some differences and doing, you know, there's some interesting uh, conversations that we're having around pooled margins across different products. We're having conversations about having a carbon budget that allows you to come in and, and help if this product has is delivering some concrete carbon value that there is an allocation that can be made to offset this. So those are some things that you know brands can do internally and in creating that you know EPNL, the environmental profit and loss plus social. There's you know really looking at the true cost of the product. So there's a lot of things a brand can do internally. However, at some point in time, with the price pressures that have been there for years and years, ultimately, the consumer's got to understand the value proposition and say, I'm going to pay more for this pair of socks because it is delivering on, you know, rotational grazing. It's delivering on you know, healthy carbon, healthy animals, healthy, you know, I'm, you know, it is regenerative in nature. So as a consumer, I will pay 20 cents more, 50 cents more, whatever the case may be, because I am a part of the solution. Yeah, that seems like a, a needed shift. Um, Jose, let me let me ask you, do you have any thoughts on the 
the EU textile strategy and, and whether or not it's a, a good thing for your business. Um, is it something that's going to be helpful uh, given where you are today? I think that, like you said, I think regulation is good to level the playing field. I think that uh, we shouldn't look at regulation to help us drive innovation. Uh, you know, they, they usually um, are quite a few steps behind of what we're trying to achieve. But um, but definitely, I, I see it as a positive. I think that anything that can help bring a level playing field in the industry and, and create that collective effort that Liz was, was talking about and in, in, in you know, change in the industry is positive. But I still think that is business responsibility to drive that innovation and to seek solutions before they become uh, you know, regular, part of the regulatory body. And to, and to um, Larry's comment about cost, I think that yes, there is definitely a conversation to be had with customers about how do we share the cost. And I don't think it's not just passing the cost to customers, but it's, just, it's a shared cost that we as business also need to share uh, with them. Um, and as we also seek to drive innovation and seek for more efficiencies and create new avenues and new uh, business opportunities, looking at this, you know, e-commerce and rental spaces and all these other, um, uh, you know, conversations and experiences that you can offer customers. Um, but yes, there is an element where customers are also transitioning uh, from the high um, volume, low, low price kind of offering to a more high quality, long durability, more of a, you know, products that actually offer you that, that ability to be able to be, get passed on. Or if you see it as an investment, you know, you, you can also put it in, 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 you know, Debop or one of those platforms and, and get some money back. So, you know, there is, there is obviously that new um, purchasing culture that is going to transform how we as customers also engage with, with businesses in the high street. Thank you. As I said, I want to finish off by asking you about rental business models. But before I do, um, a quick question for you, Lucy, on the regulation side. I hesitate to ask anyone with an Indonesian business if an EU rule around deforestation can be in any way helpful, because we know that it's often been um, with the best intentions, but not always with the greatest outcomes when it comes to policy interventions around um, you know, market access and so on. So do you see an opportunity there for your product, which I've been to see how it's made, which is pretty much as good as, as, as I think can be done. Is there an opportunity for that sort of product from a circular point of view to get preferential market access and, and therefore help level the playing field for, for, for circular materials in the future? Does, I hope that question makes sense. Yes, it does. And actually there is. Yes, I agree with you that some of these uh, policy frameworks that are coming out could be enabling market conditions for us, in fact, because there are, of course, certain um, certain industry frameworks that are currently being used uh, by the brands that may need to be much more informed and leveled or made much more objective. And of course, a broader policy framework, like for example, the EU strategy on circular and sustainable textiles could, uh, could be a useful reference for us. And at the same time, of course, it drives a lot of the improvements that we're doing, right? Like, for example, the whole EUBAT requirement on the manufacturing front and what commitments we've made in terms of being compliance in all of these. It just challenges us and also demonstrates how the rest of us also coming for operating from a developing country like Indonesia could actually respond to the to the increasing standards of the whole industry and we are rising to that to that challenge. I guess. The other half of the challenge is, of course, if I could pose it to 
to the brands as well. It's, it's also an invitation at the same time is them, for them to invest a bit more time to understand, I guess, the upstream part of the value chain so that they can actually make much more informed choices also on that front. You know, there is a whole engagement that's going on within the industry, but the upstream producers also need to be included in this process. So we, as I said, so we can tell the complete story of what sustainable fashion is all about. Yeah, there's no substitute for going and seeing production operations firsthand. Uh, I completely agree. I mean, it, it, I know it takes time out of the office and so on, and COVID's made all these things difficult, but there's no substitute for it to bring these things to life. So quick round the room then, uh, rental business models. Lucy, if you have a view, I'm happy to ask you about it. Um, but let me start with you, Liz. Um, uh, you know, overhyped, um, game changer, where do you stand? Okay, I think they're great. I mean, I think it, it goes back into um, the whole circularity conversation. My my question on the rental business is like, can you combine that with resale, right? You rent and rent and then you eventually resell the product so it doesn't end up in landfill. But I think anything you can do to make less product, um, encourage multiple uses of the same product is a great, is a great way um, to approach circularity and extending the life of product. But is it overhyped as a solution? Um, if it's overhyped i mean it's certainly like most things we do and everyone's talked about it there's something positive but there's also something negative so how often are you shipping something back and you know what i mean the same thing and how do you reduce those emissions and is it going on air freight or can you get it on the gr ground shipping so i don't i don't know if it's overhyped i do think it's a really positive step that the industry has taken but i also am not sure that it's proven um its profitability right like i don't know that there's rentals rental businesses yet that have shown that they can actually turn a profit on it so i think that that's one of the things that potentially would make it at risk yeah thank you uh jose briefly care to build on that anything left unsaid no i think i think this guy is spot on i think it's it's definitely something that adds i wouldn't see it as a, as the solution but definitely adds to to the pot of of solutions that we need and anything that increases uh you know the use of garments and and prevents them from ending in the landfill i'm, I'm completely for and uh, you know we are also trying to experiment a little bit with um both you know rentals and 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 e-commerce and take packs and things so it is um, I think it's just part of that conversation that you're getting with customers and offering them a, 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 an additional solution. But uh, yeah, so uh, okay. in favor, but don't see it as a, as a final solution. Thank you. Uh, Lucy, anything you want to add on that? You don't have to. No, it's okay. But just quickly to say, I've just tried it for the first time. And actually, yes, it does have its role in terms of our contribution to you know, making sustainable fashion choices. You don't have to buy every single product that you want to wear, especially if you're just going to wear it for the first time. Is it overhyped? Probably it needs to be hyped a bit more because it's not, it's just a niche right now. And it could be really one of the mainstream options at this point. Thank you. Closing sentence to Larray. Is it a bit like Regen Ag, Larray? You know, it's just something that's exciting that we can all get behind that has a bigger impact than the kind of the actual meaning of it initially. What, what do you think, Larray? Give us a couple of sentences on that in closing. Well, it's always interesting to me that um, one of my favorite sayings is that complex problems require multiple interventions. And so it means that this is part of the solution of, you know, creating longer life, you know, cost per wear, all those different things. 
and finding the balance in some of that. So it's going to be interesting when you think of, you know, if, as a cotton farmer, you you harvest your crop, you you know, spin it, weave it, turn it into something. But this is a you know that circularity, shorter loop of harvesting. So the stores on the ground are are having to take you know do that harvesting. And so I think it's going to be interesting looking at the business models. But again, it's not going to be the solution, but it's part of the solution and that multifaceted approach. So um, we're going to encourage it absolutely. And I think um, it, there's a learning curve here, of course. And um, so, yeah, I think it'll be, again, one of the facets that help deliver solutions. Thank you. Well, much covered here. Much more to cover during the next couple of days. Thank you all for an excellent session. And to all of you, thank you. Thank you.